Let's uh, turn to Genesis chapter 25. And uh, the last time we were together, which was two weeks ago, we looked at the first uh, 18 or so verses of chapter 25. And today we'll we'll look at uh, at verses. Hopefully, we'll look at verses 19 through about verse 26. And then next week we'll miss another week because we have another uh, special speaker coming in. So we'll have a joint class with him uh, in the sanctuary. The guy from uh, Answers in Genesis is going to be uh, speaking to us. So that should be worthwhile and uh, interesting. But uh, going back, uh, if you can put on your thinking caps and go back and kind of glance down through those first 18 or so verses of chapter 25 and try and recall what did we talk about the last time we were together? Okay. We talked about the death of Abraham and uh, what did that consist of? I mean, other than him dying. (laughs) Kind of encouraging, isn't it? A lot of times, uh, things happen in families, <laughs> and uh, hard feelings develop, and unpleasant situations develop. But here's an example of a situation where uh, they apparently, at least to some degree, managed to overcome those things and at least come back together for the burial of Abraham. What else? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. It is. It's the end of. Uh, it's the end of the. Uh, I think it's the seventh Taladot. A Taladot being a, a Hebrew word for an account or a record. And uh, as you'll recall, we've said this a number of times, but <clears throat> with new concepts, sometimes it takes us a while to learn it. A Taladot uh, in Genesis is like a, a book or a section of Genesis that Genesis really consists of. Ten of these Taladots, and we actually ended one and covered an entirely new Taladot uh, the last time we were together because we ended the Taladot of Terror, which is really the story of Abraham, and then we looked uh, very briefly at the Taladot of Ishmael, which is the account of the generations of Ishmael, Ishmael's descendants, which is a few verses there towards the uh, towards the end of uh, that section that we looked at. So that was actually the seventh Taladot, and today we will start the eighth Taladot, which is the Taladot, and we'll get into this, uh, the Taladot uh, of Isaac, or the account of the generations of Isaac. Okay. What else? Anything else? Okay. 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 Okay, there's some 
interesting parallel there to the twelve tribes of Israel. And uh, and we see, you know, the thing that's one of the things that strikes me is is how big this thing is about God having just lots of people <laughs> from whom He can save uh, many, many people and have a whole host of people who worship and enjoy His presence forever. And, and He's really serious about that. And so, even to, even to the unsaved, He gives the pleasure and the blessing of children <laughs> because He wants to raise up this mighty seed to worship Him and follow Him. And of course, it's our responsibility as the church since most of those people being born uh, are not uh, say uh, are not exposed uh, to the gospel or have exposure to the gospel. It's our job to get that message to them so they can be a part of this great plan of God. Anything else? Remember. Abraham took another wife and had more children. Okay, so at some time either before Sarah died or after Sarah died, we don't know. He took another wife, a second wife. Uh, Keturah, actually technically his third wife because Hagar is technically a wife. Uh, but uh, he takes uh, Keturah for a wife and she has six sons and so Abraham has descendants through those sons. So really through through the descendants of Keturah, uh, the children of Keturah, and through uh, Isaac, the uh, son of Sarah, and then through the descendants of Ishmael, we see God beginning to fulfill this initial promise to Abraham of, of through Abraham's body coming many nations. So these many nations are coming not only through Isaac, but through all these other descendants too. So it's really part of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Okay. We talked too about kind of the, the end of Abraham's life. And, and uh, the way I like to think of it is that is that the the description of uh, of the end of Abraham's life in chapter 25 is kind of his obituary. Okay, it's kind of the facts about his death. Okay, and uh, and kind of a summation of his life when it says that he died uh, satisfied and full of life. Okay, uh, but for the eulogy, <laughs> a eulogy is an is an honoring or an ex- or a uh, an exalting of a person, and and for the eulogy of Abraham's life, we go to Hebrews chapter eleven, and so in so in chapter twenty-five of Genesis, we have we have his obituary, and in Hebrews chapter eleven, we have his eulogy, and even though he is, he is described in Genesis chapter twenty-five as dying one who is full and satisfied with life, what picture do we get of him in his eulogy in in, in Hebrews chapter eleven? Okay, so even though he's really, in many ways, he's very satisfied. He's very, uh, he's very full with all that God has given him and God has blessed him with. Yet, when he dies, he still dies looking for something more. And that something else is, as Hebrews says, the city uh, whose uh, foundations and arch- whose architect and uh, I'm losing the verse now. But at any rate, the architecture and foundations of which are God. And uh, so he's still looking for that promise. And, and uh, the thought that Hebrews is trying to bring out there, of course, is that without us, without the completion of the redemptive story, uh, the, the thing, the real things that Abraham was hoping for and looking for and the things that were most important to him, he still, uh, still was yet to see. And, and the thing that 
the thing that struck me as I thought about that and reflected that, and we talked about a little bit about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, is is as much as God blesses us in this life, and He does bless us, and uh, I think most of us would say that we are richly blessed of God, as much as He does, uh, I, I certainly hope that I end my life not completely satisfied. <laughs> that I end my life like Abraham, looking for a city whose foundation and architect is God. And uh, so there's a real lesson there, an instruction for there about the life of faith. Well, let's pick it up then in verse 19 of chapter 25 and go on and look at uh, another part of this chapter, the next eight verses or so. And as I said, this is the uh, this is the beginning of another Taladot or another book or section of Genesis. And each one of these Taladots or sections in one sense could stand by themselves. So if you want to kind of think of it this way is that we what we really have here is we have a volume. Uh, we have a we have a set of volumes of uh, of uh, the beginnings. OK. And uh, so we have in Genesis, we have the prelude and then we have book one is which is the Taladot of the heavens and the earth. And then we have book two, which is the Taladot of Adam and Eve. Uh, or the descendants of Adam and Eve, et cetera, et cetera. And we go down. We have all these songs. So there are different books. And we've been, for the last many weeks now, we have been reading and studying the Taladot of Terror, which is really about whom? Abraham, okay? Because the Taladot, uh, the name of the Taladot, is really the name of the beginning of a, of, of a lineage, okay? So when we say it's the Taladot of Terror, it's really not about Terah. It's about Terah's descendants, Okay? And uh, so we've been looking for the last number of weeks at the Taladot of Terah, which is really the story of Abraham. We're going to close that book. We're going to put that book on the shelf and we're going to pull the next book off. Okay. now we might expect that the next book would be the Taladot of whom? Who? Well, you expect to be Abraham, wouldn't you? Okay, because we've been studying all about Abraham. Now we want to find out about Abraham's descendants. And the first one is of his descendants is Isaac. So you would expect that the next book on the shelf would be the Taladot of Abraham, which would be about Isaac. But it's not. As we'll see here, it's the Taladot of Isaac, which is really about whom? Jacob. It's predominantly about Jacob. Okay, so let's pick it up and read uh, the story. Now, these are the records or the Taladot of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, and Abraham, uh, excuse me, the Aramean of Padan Aaron, and the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah was conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth, red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. 
And Isaac was 60 years old when he gave birth to them. Okay? Well, so as I say, we are now pulling this new book off the shelf, The Account of the Generations of Isaac. And, and it, it is kind of interesting here because we have the three patriarchs and we think of the three patriarchs together. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And sometimes in Scripture we read about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the three are always connected and they're all uh, obviously very important. And, and Isaac is obviously a, a crucial element in this unfolding story of redemption, in God's plan of redemption. Isaac plays this very, very important role. He is this long-promised seed of Abraham for whom Abraham waited for so long. And then Isaac comes. But it really is interesting to me that we have about uh, 12 chapters. We began in chapter 12 and, and up into chapter 25, we have the story of Abraham and we've studied Abraham in, in extensive depth. Okay, uh, And then we come to the story of Isaac and we're going to look at Isaac's life a bit. Uh, but it shifts very quickly then to the story of Jacob. And Jacob's story really consists of part of chapter 25, as we'll see today. And, and the next time we're together uh, and then it kind of skips a chapter. And then again, in chapter 27, we'll pick up Jacob's story, Jacob and Esau, and then primarily Jacob. And it'll be Jacob's story all the way up through about chapter 35 or so. OK, so we're going to have uh, uh, 10 or 12 chapters or so about Jacob. But as far as Isaac and Isaac's career, we're only going to have one chapter, really, and that'll be chapter 26. There's, of course, a little bit about Isaac when we have the story of Moriah, uh, the story at Moriah, the sacrifice at Moriah when he was a young child or probably early teenager. Uh, and then we have uh, the, his part of the story in chapter 24 about Rebecca, but that's obviously predominantly a story about Rebecca. It's not so much about Isaac. Uh, and then we have uh, the story of, of, of Isaac's birth. And in chapter 26, we'll really have just about all we have of Isaac's career. Okay, his life of faith, his walk of faith, if you will. Uh, and then immediately we get into chapter 27 and Isaac's still in the story. But it's really the story about Jacob and Esau and the conflict that arises between those two. And so it's kind of interesting that of these three patriarchs, we have we have Abraham on the big screen. Okay. And we study him in depth, okay? And, and there's obvious reasons why we do that. Abraham is really the father of faith, so to speak. You know, he's kind, of the, uh, he's kind of the personification of what it means to walk by faith and live by faith. And, and, uh, and of course, he's the beginning of the whole, of God's whole redemptive plan of using the, the descendants of Abraham to bless the nations, etc. Okay, so he's big screen. And then over here we have Jacob and he's big screen. OK, and he's big screen for different reasons. And his story's really quite uh, stands in pretty stark contrast to Abraham's story. Uh, and, and there's a lot about Jacob's story that's, you know, kind of negative, if you will, or not real positive anyway. And there's a lot of, you know, things about Jacob's story that we're going to have to really wrestle with and struggle with. No pun intended. But. So there's Jacob's story and, and it's big screen. And be sandwiched between these two, we have 
we have Isaac, and he's just on this little, you know, nine-inch television screen. <laughs> okay, his story is just real little. Okay, well, to me that's a little interesting. You know, I, to be honest with you, I'd like to know more about Isaac. <laughs> I'd like to know more about his life and faith and all. There, there are some really puzzling things about Isaac that will come out because, because as he starts out, it's very clear. He starts out very strong. He starts out really well. Uh, we see how, we see his submission to his father there at Moriah, his faith in God uh, that allows him to submit to his father. We see we see him when Rebecca comes, when Rebecca is brought to him, you know, when he first meets his wife, and it talks about how he went into her and he loved her, and uh, and we see that picture. And we'll see that picture some today in today's story how he how he loves Rebecca and he cares for her, and uh, uh, and and then we'll see some. Some aspects of Isaac's life, how he how he trusts God. Actually, in, in in a situation we'll look at today, he really does a better job of trusting God than his father did, uh, in one regard. And so, early on in his life, he starts very positive, and we see a lot of positive things about Isaac. But those last few images that we see of Isaac in that whole thing that we're going to start studying about in the next couple of weeks or so, that whole. Uh, contest between between Isaac and Rebecca over who's going to get the blessing, you know, Isaac doesn't come out looking quite so good in that picture, you know, and some commentators have suggested that maybe that's the reason why God doesn't tell us much about Isaac's story, because he really didn't finish as well. Well, in the first place, I'm not sure that he didn't finish as well. I think that's maybe a little presumptuous. Uh, And the other thing is uh, that really doesn't explain why God doesn't tell us as much about Isaac because we have Jacob who for most of his life didn't do very well and yet he's big screen for us. So so I ask myself, why does why does God only give us this little picture of Isaac? Because it because it is true that Isaac is absolutely essential to the story. I mean Isaac plays a crucial role in this unfolding story of redemption. So the question is, why does God Give us big picture Abraham and big picture Jacob, but just a little bit about Isaac. And you're probably wanting me to give you an answer. I'm not going to give you one. And the reason is, I don't know. You know I really don't know. But, but I do know that I've got a book here that's about you know nearly 1,200 chapters long. And there are a lot of places in it where I'd like to know more. Then it tells me. But if God told me everything I wanted to know, this book would be unreadable. It would be so big, you know. So God in his sovereignty and in his providence chooses at times to tell us things. Sometimes things we go, why do I need to know this? And at other times chooses not to tell us things when we go, oh, I wish I really knew. Okay, but God knows what we need to know when we need to know it. And so he tells us those things and other things that we don't need to know for whatever reason. He leaves those things blank or he gaps over those things or he passes over those things and he doesn't tell us. But 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 just that principle in itself is instructive to me. So just the fact that Isaac, who is so important in the plan of God, is so minimal in the story of God. Just that fact itself is instructive to me. Because 
when we look at our lives, you know, where do most of us, you know, where does the story of our life get played out? You know, well, it's for most of us, it doesn't get played out on the big screen, does it? It gets played out in just this little, you know, portable TV over here in the corner. You know, it doesn't get the big screen. And we look around us sometimes and we see people, we see other Christians and we see their life goes big screen, you know, and they, they're well known and they're. And, and, and their deeds for God and their acts of faith and their failures and their sins. It's all big screen, you know. And sometimes it's really obvious why. You know, there are some great men of God and we look at their lives and, and their lives are big screen. You know, what is today? You know what today is? You know what the significance of today is? I mean, besides it's Halloween. Reformation. It's Reformation Sunday, okay? You know, what happened on October 31st, 15, whatever? Pardon? Yeah, what did he do? 95 theses on the door, okay? <laughs> October 31st, okay? Uh, <clears throat> scared, scared the devil out of the church, okay? Uh, at any rate, <clears throat> so that's how we should really remember October 31st, not as Halloween, but as a Reformation Sunday or Reformation Day, okay? Well, you know, there's a guy whose life was big screen. And, you know, I'm kind of glad it's big screen. I mean, he had a lot of weaknesses and failures, too. But I'm glad his life was big screen because because he did some fantastic things, you know, and he man, he's just such an example to us. And, and there are so many other Christians and we look down through history and their lives are big screen. And even today, there are some Christians whose lives are really big screen. And sometimes we're not so comfortable with their lives being big screen because there's sometimes there's Christians, their lives are big screen and, and they're more like Jacob than Abraham, right? <laughs> and we go, why does God let them get all the publicity when they're so messed up, you know? But, but God does that. And, but then I go, so, so why is my life so little screen? <laughs> you know, is it, is it because I'm not important? Is it because I don't make an impact for the kingdom of God? Well, certainly that wasn't the case with Isaac, was it? I mean, Isaac was absolutely crucial. He was the first promised seed. And his, you know, and his link is absolutely essential. And his walk of faith was essential to the unfolding plan of God. And yet God in his wisdom says, well, Isaac, I'm going to make your dad big screen and I'm going to make your son big screen, but you're just going to be a little part of the story. And, and it's, a, it's a comfort and it's an encouragement to me to realize that the measure of our importance to the kingdom of God is not how well known we are or how well known our story is. A measure of, the import, of our importance to the purposes and the unfolding plan of God is whether or not He has blessed us, whether He's graced us, whether He's chosen us, whether we have responded in faith and walked by faith, and obeyed Him and followed Him. That's what's important. And whether or not we're big screen or little screen doesn't really matter. Okay? So we have Isaac, and, and, uh, and he, is, he is important, and we will study him some, but not nearly as much as we studied his father, uh, or nearly as much as we will study his son, or even his grandson, Joseph. Okay? Yeah. Um, if you look at it in terms of military, I, I, I think about that anytime I read the history of warfare, you know, and they go, this general did this and this general did that. And that general didn't do that. It was the privates in the trenches that did that. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, the generals are important, of course, in their decisions and 
their leadership is important, but the real work is done by the privates and the sergeants and the captains, et cetera, in the, in the trenches. And that's the way it is with the church. Yeah. That's a, that's a good illustration, Ron. Okay, <laughs> well, so, uh, so we have uh, the story here as it begins to unfold. And then, again, we are reminded in verse 18 that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paden Aaron, and the sister of Laban of the Aramean to be his wife. And, of course, here we're simply, simply repeating something what we just studied about uh, in, uh, in chapter 24. And you might go, well, why is that repeated? Well, the reason it's repeated is because we've just taken a new book off the shelf. Okay. So it's just, uh, uh, it's just an introduction to this new book uh, that we are uh, launching into. And it's trying to remind us of some important things about the connections of Isaac and Rebekah to this family of Bethuel and Laman. Because that will become important as this story, of the, as this Taladot of Isaac unfolds. And we start to study the story of Jacob. Then this whole connection with, with Bethuel and Laban uh, up there in Peyton Aaron, that'll become an important part of the story. So we are reminded of that as we launch into this. And then we fast forward 20 years. Okay, So he's married at 40, and we find out in verse uh, uh, 26 at the end of our passage today that by the time these things really unfold, he is uh, 60 years of age. So we're going to fast forward 20 years. And in, the, in that interim, interim time, between the time he's 40 and the time he's 60, what is the primary thing that we know that Isaac and Rebecca had to deal with? She was barren. Well, how many times in Scripture do we come across this? Uh, well, you know, I, I conclude in part that Barrenness was a common phenomena back then, but but so oftentimes in Scripture we come and we just had it with Abraham, twenty five years. Actually, it was longer than that because we pick his story up at seventy five. You know, we pick the promise up at seven at seventy five, and he's a hundred when Isaac is born. But we followed Abraham and Sarah and their barrenness for twenty five years. Okay. And we labored through. Remember how we labored through that? <laughs> you know, and time and time and time again as we were studying the life of Abraham, this issue of her barrenness comes up and we struggle through that. Well, now we get the story of Isaac and we just fast forward through it. But don't, don't let your mind fast forward through it because it was 20 years, folks. For Abraham, it was 25 from the time of the promise till the time of the, the time the promise was fulfilled. Now for Isaac, it's 20 years because he still has the promise. He has the same promise his dad had, right? And, and it's that promise that whoever he marries, you know, that through Isaac, God told Abraham, through Isaac, your seed shall be called. So Isaac has the promise, but he waits 20 years while his wife is barren. Okay. Now, what is Isaac's response to this 20 years of barrenness of Rebekah? Okay, he prayed. Okay, and I want to think about that. But before we think about that, there's something else that's obvious about Isaac's response here. And it's obvious in its silence. It's obvious in the fact that it's not there. What is it? Well, yeah, yeah, that's there and that's there in his faith. I mean, that's there in, in his prayer that there's. 
faith. No, I was thinking but, the other way, kind of a lack of faith, the same as it was in Abraham. Why do you think there's a lack of faith? Because he knew he was part of the promise. Okay. The same as Abraham. Abraham had the promise, and Abraham still worried about it, trying to fix it. What is the evidence of Abraham's lack of faith? Hagar. But you notice something about Isaac? There's no Hagar in Isaac's story. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I mean, when, when we talked about Hagar with Abraham, remember how we talked about how that was the cultural solution? That's the way you solve that problem in the culture? And, and so it was really kind of natural for Abraham to do that, even though he shouldn't, because it was obviously a, uh, it was obviously a, a, a breakdown in his faith there at that moment. But, but with Isaac, he doesn't do that. With Isaac, he waits 20 years and he never at any point gets to a point where he says, I'm going to have to take this into my own hands. Or at least he never does. You know, and, and like you, Ron, I think, you know, he probably struggled. You know, he probably wrestled with it at times. But at least he never got to the point where his father did. And I asked myself, why? Oh, I can't I can't help but believe that, you know, I can't help but believe that, that he's thinking all the problems I've had in my life with my brother Ishmael. If I walk by the flesh here, if I try to solve this thing in the flesh, it's just going to cause problems. So as much as I like to solve this problem, as much as I like to fix this problem, I'm going to wait on God. So, so I, I can't, you know, of course, the scripture is silent on it, so we don't know what all he's thinking. But I can't help but think that that was probably in the back of his mind. That he's, maybe not so much in the back of his mind, but in his mind that he's thinking, you know, it just doesn't work when we try and do it ourselves. And how many times in our lives are we tempted to do what Abraham did and to resolve our problems and our crises by relying on the arm of flesh? And, 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 and if we would just maybe learn the lesson that Isaac learned by watching it and happen in other lives and go, that just doesn't pay off, folks. It just doesn't pay off to live that way. So, so uh, I think that that's, that's, that's probably one thing that was a factor in his mind. But I think there's, in addition to that, I think there's something else that's a factor in his mind that helps him wait on God to do this thing rather for him to do it himself. And that is the fact that that not only does he have the negative example of his father's experience of taking Hagar. So he has that negative example that he that he uses to help avoid that pitfall. But he also has the positive example of his father's experience in what? Giving birth at such an old age to whom? To him. So he's the living proof. He himself is the living proof of the benefits of not relying upon the arm of flesh, but waiting upon God to do it. And so Isaac, for whatever reasons, and I think those are probably two reasons that are predominant in his mind, as difficult as it is for him to wait 20 years, he waits 20 years. Okay. So then, so, so. Uh, my initial question was, what was, Abraham, what was Isaac's response to the barrenness of his wife? And the first answer is, he didn't do what his father did with Hagar. And the second is that he 
Somebody already said this. He prayed. Okay. How long did he pray? <laughs> okay. We don't know, do we? We don't know how long he prayed. We don't even know really what he prayed other than the fact that he prayed on behalf of his wife. Yeah. Isn't that, just before we go on, isn't that sweet? Isn't that tender? You know, I mean, we see some really neat pictures of Isaac. We're going to see some things about him later, like I say, that, you know, aren't, aren't so complimentary. But there are some neat things about Isaac. And that picture of him when he first sees his wife and, and, and it says he loved her. You know, that's a precious picture. Now, here we have this precious picture of him asking the Lord, seeking the Lord on behalf of his wife. You know, and I'm sure Isaac wanted a son. I have no doubt that Isaac wanted a son. But it is interesting the way the scriptures record that there, isn't it? Wasn't that he was praying for a son for himself? But he's praying on behalf of his wife. And that's such a precious picture. So he's, he's praying, but the scripture doesn't tell us. Did he pray for 20 years? Or did he wait 20 years and then pray? You know, I, like Ruth, I kind of assume he probably prayed at least periodically over a period of 20 years. But we don't know that. We really only know two things for certain. One is that he prayed. And the second is that God answered. And that's all we really need to know. Okay. We don't need to know all the details of the struggle, apparently, because God didn't tell us. He did with Abraham. We got a chance to look inside Abraham's brain a little bit on that. But with Isaac, the Lord doesn't think it's necessary for us to know all the, all the things that Isaac went through or how many times he prayed or even the, the exact prayer that he prayed. We don't need to know all those things. We just need to keep the two things in mind. That when Isaac was confronted with barrenness, that he prayed. And when Isaac prayed, God answered. And that's all we need to know. And that's plenty, isn't it? You think God was telling you differently if he hadn't prayed? You already had the promise. You know, that's one of those imponderable questions we can't answer, isn't it? About the the purpose of God and the whole question of election and all that sort of thing. That brings up all those issues, you know. And I don't know. But I do know he prayed. And God heard his prayer. That's all I know. And and all of us in our lives face seasons of barrenness, don't we? All of us in our lives face times when when we thought we had a promise from God that it just somehow isn't happening. And, uh, and the question is, how will we respond? And Isaac is a great example for us. He really is. In what he didn't do and what he did do. And he's a tremendous example for us too because he's an illustration to us of what happens when we, in our times of barrenness, Seek the Lord. Now, as I mentioned, I don't know how long he had to do this. And he may have had to seek the Lord for 20 years before he got an answer, but he got an answer. Because God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to do what he said. And God is faithful to hear and answer the prayers of those who seek him. And so he did. And he did it in spades. 
<laughs> okay, right? He gives he gives her twins. Okay. Now, this is another one of these imponderables of the story of Isaac. Is I have no idea why God gave him twins. As we'll see here in a minute, in a few minutes, we'll see it becomes an important theological illustration later in Scripture. So we learn a lot theologically from these twins that she had. But I don't know if that's why God gave her twins. I don't know if God gave her twins because he knew we needed an illustration or if he gave her twins for some other reason. And and it worked out that it turns out to be a great illustration of this whole concept of God's choice and God's selection and 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 being people of faith and that sort of thing. So, so I don't know why she had twins, but she got twins. Now, I've never been pregnant. Uh, you can probably tell. And I've never been pregnant with twins. Okay. So I don't know when you when a woman has twins in her body how soon she who soon, how soon she figures out she's got twins. But from what I understand, you can go the whole nine months and not know, right? I mean, it's possible to have twins and, and not know until they're actually born. Okay. But at some point in Rebecca's pregnancy, what happens? Okay. The, the twins are struggling within her. Okay. Now, my wife's had five kids. Okay. So, so I know these babies, when they're in their mothers, they can make them really uncomfortable, right? And most of you women probably know that. Okay, they can make them pretty uncomfortable. Well, that's not what we're talking about here, folks. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about first she has twins, so that you know raises the bar some to some degree, just in and of itself. Okay, but it uses the word here. It says that the twins were struggling within her. So much so that she asks this question. She says, if this is so, uh, why am I this way? It says in the New American. Okay, it's very difficult, uh, as I understand it, a very difficult Hebrew uh, structure there to translate. So it's very difficult to translate. But but probably a more literal translation would be something along the lines of if this is so. Why me? Okay. And uh, and so she's asking this question and uh, and and she she needs an answer to this question of what's going on inside her body. And so where does she go to get an answer? She goes to the Lord. OK, so that tells us some things about what's actually going on in her body. These three things tell us something about what's going on in her body. First, the word struggle. OK, the word struggle there. As kind of as a, as kind of an unusual word to use because it really has a connotation of violence. Okay, it's used at several other places in Scripture to talk about things being crushed. Okay, so for you ladies who have had this wonderful experience of carrying a child and you know all the discomfort that's involved, just escalate that several fold. Okay, because whatever is going on inside of this poor woman is violent. You know, it's really a struggle. Okay, and it's it's exponentially greater than you might expect and is so intense that she knows of no one who has had a similar experience. 
Okay. In other words, she can't run down the run down the road and talk to her friend down the road who had twins a few weeks ago or a few months ago or a few years ago and say, "What is this like?" She, well, it's pretty rough, and that you know, that, that didn't answer her question. That you know, she is she is so distressed by this situation. She's she's not going. Well, I've got you know, maybe I've got twins or whatever, or you know, I'm having this baby, and man, it's painful, but. But this is a good thing. That's not what she's saying. What she's saying at this point is, I thought I was the woman who was going to bear the promise. But I think I'm going to die. Why me? That's what she's asking. She's asking, this thing is so hard. This thing is so rough. This cannot be the fulfillment. Or, or if it is, how in the world could this be the fulfillment of God's promise? Why is this happening to me? I thought I was going to be the one through whom this promise was going to come. Why me? So obviously, what she's experiencing is something that's so intense and so great that there's nobody around who can explain it to her. There's nobody around who can say, oh, well, that's normal. That's just the way it is when you're having twins. You know? Now, I don't know if she knew at this point that she was having twins or not. Okay. But all she knows is she's having this extreme turmoil for which the scripture uses a word that implies violence inside her body. And she is so distraught by it that she's going, why me? And she is so bewildered by it because there's nobody around who can explain it to her. She is forced to go to the Lord for an explanation. You notice it says she went to the Lord. She didn't ask for. She didn't go to the Lord to ask him to make things easier or anything like that. She went to the Lord to inquire. She went to the Lord to find out what's going on here. Okay. So there's this tremendous struggle that's going on inside of her. And so we are introduced here to a theme in Genesis, which has been kind of a subtext from very early in Genesis. It's just kind of been kind of under the current. And here. In this passage, it gets escalated. It gets elevated. It becomes now a dominant or a prevalent theme through the entire rest of the book of Genesis. And that's this idea of conflict and struggle. Okay? Struggle, conflict becomes a dominant theme, if not the dominant theme through the rest of the book of Genesis. So early on, we had, we had the, uh, the, uh, the Lord's word to the serpent in the garden where he said, uh, said to the serpent, he said, uh, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, meaning the seed of the woman. And so there's this introduction of the element of this idea of conflict between the two seeds early on in Genesis. And then, of course, we have the struggle between uh, Cain and, and, uh, and, and Abel. And we have the struggle between Abraham and Lot. And we have various struggles. We have various conflicts that come to the surface. So it's kind of an undercurrent or a subtext there through the early part of Genesis. But now here we get to the middle of Genesis and conflict becomes the dominant theme. So now we have this conflict between Isaac and uh, uh, between uh, Jacob and Esau that begins in the womb. Now, I should point out there's nothing moral. There's no moral implication in the conflict in the womb because the scripture explicitly says that when they were in the womb, they did nothing good or bad. Okay, so it's just. Two babies trying to establish their territory, I guess. I don't know what it is. But there's no moral implication to what's going on in the womb. Because in the womb, the Bible says they did nothing good or bad. Okay. But so you have this conflict between Isaac or between uh, uh, Jacob and Esau. 
And then quite soon we'll see the conflict between Jacob and Laman. Uh, and we're going to have the conflict uh, eventually between uh, Joseph and Joseph's brothers, etc. So we're going to have these various conflicts now that becomes really become central to the story. They become the, the thing around which the whole story is woven. So it becomes a, 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 a dominant theme and we're going to be wrestling with it through the rest of the book of Genesis. Okay. And it'll be interesting how these various conflicts get resolved when they do get resolved. Uh, but so we have this struggle going on and and poor Rebecca, she is just, you know, I really think what she's I think right at this point, she's probably fearing for her life. This thing is so violent, it's such so intense and she has no explanation for it. She probably, I think, doesn't at this point even know she has twins and and. So she has no explanation for it and it seems life-threatening and in many ways it seems like, how can this be? I mean, I thought, I thought the promise was going to come through me. You ever been there? You ever been, been in that place where you thought you knew God's love and His grace for you and His plan towards you and His promise towards you and, and you thought you had all that pretty well nailed down but life just isn't working out that way? And, and there are times when you just go, why me? You know, why is this happening to me? What, what have I done? Yeah. Now, to Rebecca's credit, when she reaches this point in her life, what does she do? She seeks the Lord. She inquires of the Lord. So she goes to inquire of the Lord. Now, I think this is instructive, and I beat this drum before, but excuse me for beating it again. Okay. She's going to the Lord to ask what? Why? Okay. Rebecca is going to the Lord to ask why. I don't understand. I don't get it. So oftentimes I've heard people say that it's a sin or it's wrong to ask God why. And I just don't understand where they get that in the Bible. Over and over again in the Bible, we see people going to God to say, why? (laughs) And here's another example of a a woman of faith who is facing something that is so bewildering to her and so painful to her, she feels she's got to have an answer and she goes to God and asks why. There's nothing wrong with asking God why. Now, our hearts have to be right. And we have to be willing by faith to receive the answer that comes. But please, when you're in that crisis and you need an answer, be like Rebecca and say, God, why? Why is this happening to me? I thought I had it all figured out and I thought you'd made these promises, but it it doesn't seem to be working out the way I thought you told me it was going to work out. Why not? The key is not whether or not we ask why. The the problem lies not in whether or not we ask why. The problem lies in how we respond. And the question is, when we ask why, if the answer comes back and it's a pleasant answer, it's a good answer, will we believe? Will we lay hold of that? Will we cling to that? When we go to God and ask why and the answer comes back and it's a 
hard answer, will we accept that? And will we respond to it in the way God wants us to respond to it? Or when we go to God and we ask why, and he doesn't answer us, and that's his prerogative. We can ask why, but it's not his obligation to tell us. When we go to God and we ask why, and he doesn't tell us, will that be sufficient for us? And if our attitude has been right in going and asking why, and he doesn't answer us, by faith it ought to be sufficient for us. We can say something. Yeah, I'll start to say something that you just answered. Yeah. I'm just asking as you go. Yeah. There's a difference in asking why and trusting God. Yes, yes. You hear people say, why did you do that? Why, yeah. oh, why, oh, why did yeah. you do that? As though you've made a mistake or a bad yeah. decision. It's really an accusation, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we can, and that's, and that's a very good distinction, Ron. We can, in our asking why, really be accusing God of injustice. And I don't think there's any of that in... In, in Rebecca's mind here. In Rebecca's mind, it's just simply bewilderment. And she needs some kind of explanation from God. Because she has on one hand the promises and on the other hand the suffering and this bewilderment. And somehow she's got to bring these things together in her heart and mind. And so God graciously responds to her by giving her this oracle. By giving her this word from Him about what's really going on. And He explains it to her. Now, whether or not she understood when he explains it, that this meant twins, I don't know. I assume she did, but I don't know for sure. But God says, there are two nations in your womb and two peoples will be separated from you and one people will be greater than the others and the elder will serve the younger. And so this is God's explanation. And, and so whether or not she fully comprehended what that meant, at least she knew God had a plan. At least she knew God knew about it. And God was in control and he had a plan. So, so she goes on and eventually has the children. But, but this passage here is, is crucial. It's crucial theologically, of course. And the passage comes up again. And this whole situation of the birth of these twins comes up again. It comes up in Hosea. It comes up in Malachi. It comes up in Romans chapter 9. Okay? So this is very important theologically what's going on here. Uh, but I want you to notice what God has done here. In, in explaining to her that she has these two nations, she has these two peoples within her that are going to separate the idea of conflict again, of separation, of alienation. Okay? They're going to separate from her. That, they, that one will be greater than the other. And he says... The oldest will serve the younger. Now, what God is doing there is He's overruling the law of primogeniture. Okay, the law of primogeniture. Primo meaning first, genitor having to do with birth. Okay, the law of first birth. Okay, and God's overruling that here. God's decreeing that something's going to happen here that turns the law of primogeniture on its head. Now, we've talked about the law of primogeniture before. Uh, when we clear back early in Genesis, when we talked about this whole thing of, of the patriarchal culture and what the patriarchal culture was like. And we talked about how, you know, to this whole law of the primogeniture, that's pretty foreign to us. And for those like myself, who are the youngest in the family, it's pretty offensive. You know, I don't like hearing about this law of primogeniture. In our culture, we don't do it, right? We think, you know, 
mom and dad, you know, when they pass on, they should have a will written that divides everything equally to all the, the children, unless one of them was a real renegade or whatever. We just expect an equal distribution to the children. It's only fair, okay? That's the way we think. But we live in a different kind of culture. We live, we don't live in a patriarchal culture. In a patriarchal culture, it was essential for the firstborn to have the bulk of the wealth because he was going to be responsible for the clan after his father passed. So it was necessary that he have the bulk of the wealth. Okay. So, so within the cultural setting, it's not a spiritual thing, but within the cultural setting, this whole law of primogeniture was, was, was a vital law. It was a crucial. And you just didn't overturn it. You just didn't set it aside because it's the way we functioned as a society. It's the way we functioned as a culture. It's the way we function as a family. And you start turning these rules and guidelines on their head and it really upsets things, okay? Which we will see happens, of course, in the unfolding story of Jacob and Esau. <clears throat> but what God has done is he's, he's overturned this rule. Not permanently, but in this situation. He does it in other situations as well. And it will be interesting when we get to the end of Genesis and, and we find Jacob blessing the sons of Joseph. You remember what Jacob does? That upsets Joseph? He crosses his hand so he ends up blessing the youngest. Now think about who's doing that. It's Jacob doing that, right? It's Jacob. And it's Jacob like, it's Jacob going... Well, just because the youngest, your youngest doesn't mean you shouldn't get the breaks in life. <laughs> that's the way he thought his whole life, okay? And so when he blesses the sons of Joseph, that's exactly what he does. He turns over, he blesses the youngest one more than the oldest one. <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of interesting. We'll study that when we get to it. Okay? But so, so this will happen more than once in Scripture, as in the unfolding story of Scripture. But, but it happens here. And what's at stake here is the promise and the blessing. And the inheritance. Okay. That's what's at stake here. And we learn something very important about God's promise and God's blessing. It's not conditioned upon human reasoning and human laws and in human ways of doing things. So God's blessings and God's grace and God's favor isn't conditioned on us being beautiful or handsome or wealthy or powerful or intelligent, or any of the things that we think of that are the evidences of God's blessing and favor. Because that's the way man looks at things. If God said to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And God, from, from, from His perspective, looking on those two children in the womb, was not looking on the outward appearance, but He was looking on the heart. Now, when these two children are born, outwardly, outwardly, as far as their character is concerned, they look very much the same. Now, physically and temperamentally, they're quite different. Esau is born. He's very hairy. He's very red. He's, you know, kind of looks like an ape man, you know. And then there's Jacob, and he comes out, and the outstanding feature of his birth is what? He's holding on to Esau's heel, okay? So Esau, he gets called... Esau. That's the name him Esau, which means hairy. Okay, and later he gets a nickname Edom, from which we get the Edomites, who become a constant thorn in the flesh of Israel. Okay, but but his nickname becomes Edom, which is a reference to him selling his birthright, 
for a pot of red stew. Edom meaning red. Okay. But when Esau is born, I mean, when Jacob is born, he's holding on to his brother's heel. He comes out second. He's holding on to his brother's heel and they call him Jacob. Which means the heel catcher, the supplanter. So he's the supplanter. And that'll be the characteristic of his life. Through a good part of his life, we'll see him supplanting. We'll see him deceiving. We'll see him playing tricks. We'll see him doing all kinds of things to manipulate things. And so, so as far as his character is concerned, he really doesn't look all that different than his brother. But there is something that sets them aside. That sets them apart, I should say. There's something that dramatically sets them apart. Even though, externally, when we look at them, they, get, they really don't act all that different. There, there's something that distinguishes, and we'll see this as the story unfolds, there's something that distinguishes the character of Esau from the character of Isaac. And that is that Esau is indifferent to the promise. And Jacob is obsessed with it. And it makes all the difference in the world. Now, admittedly, Jacob goes about it in the flesh most of the time, trying to acquire the flesh. And only finally, when he wrestles with the angel of the Lord there on the banks of the river as he's returning to Canaan, only then, finally, does he get it right that if I'm going to get this blessing, I've got to get it from God. Only then. And when he does, he also gets a new name. And that name is Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. And if we're going to wrestle, folks, it's a lot better we wrestle with God than we wrestle with our brothers. And it's finally when Isaac, or excuse, uh, when uh, Jacob comes to that point of wrestling with God that his name is changed to Israel. Okay? And we'll see all this as we go through the story. But, but we have this tremendous, uh, this tremendous illustration here in the birth of these sons. And as I said, it becomes a, a, a potent theological uh, demonstration, a theological illustration which Paul, of course, which would, uh, actually, which Malachi will use, and then Paul uses in Romans chapter nine to explain to us how, folks, it's by faith through the promise, and it's not by our outward appearance. It's not by how we look on the outside. It's not by all the outward trappings, but it's by faith, and that's going to be the exciting thing as we study the story of Jacob, because we're going to see all this junk in Jacob's life. But there's that, under, there's that undercurrent of faith, that undercurrent that he values the promise of God where his brother despises it. And it makes all the difference in the world, in their lives, in their destinies, and ultimately in their role in redemptive history. Okay? Well, when we're back together again in a couple of weeks, then we'll get into this whole story of, of Esau selling his birthright.